Hello, and welcome to another episode of the Interrobang Podcast. I'm your host, Amy Simon. Thank you for being with me today, and thanks for listening. Before we kick off the first episode of Black History Month, with today's focus being on inclusion and diversity, it reminds me, we're actually coordinating a cover contest for our diversity issue right now. If you want to see your art on the cover of the Interrobang, this is your chance. The contest is on from now until February 16th, and all you have to do is visit the slash contest, fill out the submission form, and download all the details that are going to break down sizing, location, etc. And the winner will also receive a $200 prepaid Visa card. Your art should tell us what diversity means to you. So get your submissions in as soon as possible, and I can't wait to see what you come up with. Now, let's go and talk about some of the news you may have missed this week. Our top story, Aaron O'Toole is out as the conservative leader. One third of the caucus signed a letter earlier this week to force the leadership review, an expression of what party insiders said was a dissatisfaction of O'Toole's performance. The majority voted to remove O'Toole in a secret ballot on Wednesday. O'Toole asked politicians and the next conservative leader to recognize that our country is divided and people are worried, pointing to the ongoing protests that are taking place just outside of Parliament. O'Toole will stay on to serve as the Durham, Ontario, Member of Parliament. And London police say a man has been arrested in connection to a fatal stabbing on Monday in the city's West End. 38-year-old Gregory Kane of London has been charged with second-degree murder and the death of 66-year-old Stephen Hutchinson. Police say the suspect and victim were known to each other. Officers responded to a call around 11.45 a.m. on Monday on Springbank Drive west of Warrencliffe Road South after a man sustained life-threatening injuries. He was taken to hospital where he later died. This incident marks the city's first homicide of 2022. And Western's upper year and graduate level courses have returned to in-person learning. That includes second, third, and fourth year undergraduate courses, as well as graduate and professional programs. First year main campus courses will continue online until February 28th, and residences remain closed to most students. The university also confirmed they would replace their return to campus questionnaire with a provincial self-assessment tool. Now, we are joined by a very special guest this week on the Interrobang podcast. Lydia Collins is a writer and sexual health educator with a focus on HIV prevention in African, Caribbean, and Black communities and decolonial consent education. Lydia is the author of three self-published poetry books, which we'll be diving into today, and I can't wait for you to hear it. Lydia has been working with Leah Marshall, Fanshawe's sexual violence prevention advisor, to bring an online workshop to our students called Reclaiming Pleasures, Sex, Race, and Liberation, so stay tuned for that. But before I spoil too much of what's to come, let's give a warm welcome to Lydia Collins. Lydia, thank you so much for joining us here in the Interrobang podcast. Thank you so much for having me. So before we dive into all of the incredible work and your journey and, and everything to do with it, um, I would love if maybe we can get a little bit of an introduction, let our audience know what you do and, and really just starting there. Yeah, for sure. Um, so yeah, again, thanks so much for having me, Amy. Um, yes, my name is Lydia Collins. I am a sexual health educator, um, an author, and just a creator overall, and I'm based in Montreal. Um, essentially, the, the focus of my work in regards to sexual health education for the past five years has been HIV prevention and sexual violence prevention, specifically in Black communities. So I currently work for an organization um, that focuses specifically on African Caribbean and Black um, HIV and prevention um, support and care um, within Ontario. And so um, 
that's kind of what I'm currently doing. I'm an author. I have two chapbooks of poetry, actually three. One's a, a digital, uh, like an online chapbook. Um, and so, yeah, that's kind of what I do, I guess, um, these days in the pandemic, I do everything from home. So I'm always trying to think, okay, what, what do I, what am I doing? Um, but yeah, I'm still doing all the same things just from strictly my office in my home. Um, but yeah, so that's a little bit about me. That's absolutely incredible. And there's just so much to uncover there, but kind of breaking it down, you said, uh, at, at the bottom, you're a, a creator. So I guess what inspired you to go into all these different different areas and where does yeah. that, just this root of inspiration come for you yeah i think for me i've always had this strong um kind of passion towards community health and sexual health but also have always been a writer and always loved um yeah that kind of creative side as well um, i did my undergrad degree in um english language and literature and i minored in women's and gender studies so those two kind of were the beginning of me being able to see the combination of those two worlds of kind of um, getting some of the community health and kind of sociology stuff from women's and gender studies, as well as still getting to do the creative writing side with my English degree. That was the first time that I really thought to myself, oh, these two worlds can exist in a career, um, right? I think there's always this idea of careers needing to be really linear. Um, you know, either you're a writer or a sexual health educator, either you're a this or that and so i never really was able to see what that could look like um and even to this day i don't necessarily know anyone specific that has uh, a career that looks specifically like mine um that kind of encompasses all of these things and so um essentially i kind of just always pulled from my love for workshop facilitation education um sexual health always kind of all of these things always focusing in the context of um, black communities as well. Um, and so when I started doing work in um, HIV prevention, um, and the focus was specifically on black communities in Ontario, that was when I realized, oh, okay, this is, this is something that I can actually really specialize in. Um, and then when it came to the sexual violence prevention work that I did, that kind of started in my undergrad. Um, I have one of the co-organizers of a group called Decolonize and Deconstruct, which was a group of BIPOC students, both graduate and undergraduate, um, under the support of a professor, Margot Francis, and a few other um, professors as well. And we essentially noticed as students that a lot of the rhetoric around sexual violence prevention and consent education on our campus, we it wasn't reaching us. It wasn't, it didn't feel like it was resonating with us. It was very surface level. Yes means yes, no means no. There was campaign, campaigns like, consent is sexy or consent for pizza and all these kinds of things, um, which, you know, at a surface level are great quick ways to get students to interact with conversations around consent, of course. Um, so it wasn't a way to say that these were necessarily bad. It was more so us saying, we're not seeing anywhere on campus or elsewhere where people are diving into larger conversations around the fact that race and racism needs to be a key component of sexual, of, of consent education. Right, because all of us as Black and Indigenous and, and people of color, we were all talking about the fact that our experiences and and the way we understand sexual violence has always been through the lay the lens of our race being at the forefront of that. Right, we thought about whether both historically and currently of the ways in which Black and Indigenous people, especially women and femmes, have been impacted by sexual violence 
solely based on race, right? Race and gender. Um, whether you look at uh, first contact with indigenous people, whether you look at things like chattel slavery, um, sexual violence has constantly been used as a war tool on people of color. And so we wanted to just talk more about the fact that our experiences when it comes to understanding consent are, are unique and are different and it needs to be it's important that they're incorporated. So that's really where that work kind of stemmed from. And so I guess in university is where the inspiration kind of started because I could, I finally got to see where I could kind of mix all of the things that I love and am interested in and put them into one thing. Um, and so now I've been, been kind of doing that work in different ways um, for the last five years. And yeah, it's it's been really exciting and educational and I've been learning a lot. and. Um, I've got to meet some really great folks, so it's been really lovely. Yeah, absolutely. And even just looking, I know you have a website there that I was looking at before we we got, jumped on this, and it's absolutely incredible. And just the way that, Thank like you, you were saying before, um, encompassing writing and, and talking about sexual violence and kind of bringing that attention and the way that you describe things, it's so vivid and it just grabs my attention. And one of the first things I wanted to talk about well, we focus on your website and all the amazing work that you have published there. <clears throat> there was something, I opened it and I saw this little picture. It was like a, an illustration of, of Adam Sandler. And there was a quote <laughs> underneath it. <laughs> and there was a quote underneath it where it was one of his and it's, I can't put a condom on racism. So I would love to dive into, because even just opening your website and getting, you know, seeing all the work that you do, seeing that that's the first thing that pops up. <laughs> what what was the the inspiration for that and diving just into the the Adam Sandler <laughs> section? Yeah, along. yeah. So that was actually my most recent blog post. Um, it was around consent and safer sex and anti blackness. And so I I I made that quote. I can't put a condom on racism because I thought it fit perfectly into what I was portraying in that in that blog post. Um, so I guess for context around the Adam Sandler piece, I've always had a huge crush on Adam Sandler. Um, for as long as I can remember, like even when I was a kid, everybody else would be like, ooh, like, I don't know, D'Angelo or Chris Brown or whoever. And I was like, Adam Sandler's, that's the one. Like, <laughs> that's the guy. <laughs> that's the one for me. Um, and And so in that piece, I kind of talk about um just the funny kind of relation of the fact that the first boy that I was intimate with looked a lot like Adam Sandler and so kind of and, and what that experience was like and so and so that's kind of where it came from but but at the heart of the essay was was me talking about um about the fact that going going back to the root of I can't put a condom on racism right and so even though <laughs> I didn't get much education around sexual health and sexual health in, in school, both elementary and um, high school. I still, whether it be from my, my parents or just media or friends uh, or from the little bit that I did get in school, I had a, a fairly basic understanding of what safer sex looked like, at least at that time for me, for what I understood it as. Um, as much as there was a lot that was not included, it, it, I feel like I had somewhat of a little bit of a basis. And so when I went into my first intimate experience, I remember thinking, wow, you know, I, there's condoms, we, we used lube, we communicated quite a little bit, <laughs> as much as awkward 15 year olds communicate. Um, <laughs> we, you know, we, there was consent, right? Um, so so I, I thought about these things and I, I thought about the fact of, okay, I, I checkmarked all of these things that we learn are considered safer sex, 
But then I move on and, and that same person's mom called me a porch monkey. And that same person told his friends that having sex with me was like he got his black belt. And so these are things I learned afterwards. I learned about the fetishization and the fact that it actually wasn't consensual because he, I was something for him to conquer. I was something that he was fetishizing, whereas I was going into it thinking that it was not that, right? And so it gets into a bit of a larger essay um, conversation around fetishization and how that is also part of something we need to talk about in consent, right? If somebody is only having sex with you because they think that they want to have sex with a black girl <laughs> or they, they've never had sex with a, this kind of person, um, then that's not consensual, right? And, and so talking a little bit about that. And so when I said I can't put a condom on racism, it was kind of born out of this frustration, tapping into that younger version of me thinking I did everything right, but there's no, I don't have any sexual health education or training around what to do when experiencing racism in romantic and sexual relationships. Um, and nobody's ever taught me that or thought about that. And I, I just kept thinking, why, why not? Like anti-Blackness is such a big topic that kind of permeates the sex lives and romantic lives of Black people. Um, so why aren't we talking about it in the context of sex and, and romantic relationships? And so, um, yeah, that, that's where that quote was was really that's where it stemmed from yeah it, it's it's just so impactful and even talking about just that single piece that you've done specifically <clears throat> you you bring up such a good point that these are areas that aren't really talked about where people experience these types of racism and even in your work you really the the uniqueness of it you allow yourself to kind of share your own experience and it's kind of i i it, it almost allows yourself to be vulnerable. And I, I even felt a connection to it when I was reading it. And it really resonated with me and the words that you were saying and, and highlighting an issue that's often kind of pushed down or not really focused on. And you bring it to this limelight in such a, a vivid and, and descriptive way where a lot of people, like I said, can resonate with it. And that also goes towards the poetry that I've seen that you're writing and you have all these amazing books and I'd love to break down each individual one if we can because they're all so beautiful and unique in different ways and the, the first one I want to talk about which I think was your first one um angry black women that came out back yeah. in 2019 which is yeah. crazy to believe that's oh, like that's over three years ago right <laughs> <laughs> but I I saw it was exploring uh, interesting identities of rage, blackness, and and womanhood, and again, it's all through your eyes, which I love about personally the work that you put out. So I would love to know, I guess, the inspiration for even not only that book, but really going into poetry as a whole. Mm, yeah, thank you. Um, yeah, no, thank you for for kind of um, describing that that piece in such a kind of beautiful and succinct way as well. Um, but my inspiration, so I started off really I've always been writing I've always loved writing um but I first started sharing my writing with the world and actually making a blog and putting it out there when I was probably 20 or 21 and I was still in university um and it was after a breakup and so I kind of just used it as like a personal diary <laughs> and people responded to it well and people engaged with it and resonated with it so I was like okay I'll continue to write and, and put it out there um and so I always saw myself as doing blog writing article writing life writing um you know, nonfiction kind of stuff. And so it wasn't until maybe three or probably four years ago that I really thought, okay, let me give poetry a real go. 
um, let me just kind of, you know, I've had some journal entries or I've written some poetry for fun, but I haven't really put any out there. And it wasn't something that I could really completely see for myself as much as I loved poetry as a genre. I've always loved spoken word. Um, and I've, I've loved, there's a lot of poets that I've always um, gained inspiration from as a writer, but I just didn't necessarily see myself as a poet. Um, and then I just started thinking about, you know, the cool thing about poetry is that there's no wrong way to do it. It's one of those things where, you know, it's it's really just your thoughts, your experiences, your feelings, your whatever you have to say in, in a way that can be long or short. It could be two lines. It could be three pages. And so I just really liked the the creative expression and the flexibility and the room for freedom in um, poetry, especially like um, free verse poetry and blank verse poetry, where there was just not as many rules around it has to rhyme or it has to like this or it has to be like Shakespeare. Um, and instead, it was just kind of like, do what you want. And so when I started reading more um, Black poets, especially, and kind of really rereading some of their work as well, um, especially when I was introduced to Claudia Rankin's um, book, Citizen, which is like a American lyric poem um, that's really, really beautiful. And that was where I started to think, whoa, this looks like some stuff that I, I would write about. This looks like a way that I would, you know, express myself. And so that really inspired me to start doing poetry. And with Angry Black Woman, that was really, it was kind of born from conversations with other women of color in my life. Um, and realizing, and there's a poem in there um, that kind of speaks to that as well. But it really made me think about, wow, we have so many of these similar experiences, right? And so I've tried to kind of encapsulate some of those similar experiences without generalizing Black people and Black women, um, because all of our experiences vary and they're so different, right? And we're individuals, we're multifaceted. So I never want to be that like spokesperson for, for Black people who's trying to say, this is what it, it, it means to be a Black woman. This is what it looks like because it, it changes for everybody, right? Um, so it was more so me just kind of with the experiences of friends and family and, and peers and other people in mind, kind of taking my own experiences and, and putting it through my own lens and saying, okay, this is, these are some of the experiences um, that I have um, and breaking it into three parts of, like you said, kind of rage and, and blackness and womanhood and thinking about how those three identities um, intersect for me, um, but also, it was really a way, a way, even in the in the title itself, to challenge the stereotype of the angry black woman, right? It's one that goes far back. Um, I used to do workshops. The first few times that I started doing workshop facilitation, um, the first few workshops that I did were actually um, about stereotypes of black women that are born from colonialism. So I kind of broke down in that workshop um, the sapphire imagery, the um, mammy trope, and the the Jezebel trope. And so the Sapphire trope is the angry black woman, right? It's kind of this idea of black women um, who are more quote unquote masculine, who are angry, who are um, just, you know, untamable. And so when I put when I started this poetry collection, that was really kind of what I had in mind too, was how can I kind of make like poke fun at that trope and kind of say, what's wrong with that, right? What's wrong with being an angry black woman? And, and also within the book, you can see 
that there are so many reasons for us to be angry, right? And so this trope is kind of used against us as, oh my gosh, you're so angry, you're so angry. And so I kind of went into it being like, yeah, I am. <laughs> and this is why, right? And, and it makes sense. And so, yeah, I guess I guess that was really the, the thought behind it and, and kind of where it came from. Yeah, and I mean, talk about impactful. I mean, as a woman myself, but as someone who um, has dealt with kind of similar situations in terms of some of these struggles of just womanhood and all together, but even looking and seeing that there is this whole other layer for Black women. And when you bring in that Black lens, I can't, it, it, it fills me with such emotion because as much as I can resonate just to the point because I am a woman, there's this whole other layer that I personally can't connect to. So seeing it through your work and seeing how it's displayed through other women as well, and they're telling their stories, it leaves me with such this kind of raw emotion that I can't even put into words, but it's just something that will always continue to resonate with me. And I think it's absolutely beautiful the way that you kind of display it in this poetry and you're, you're taking back those, those trumps, as you were saying, and moving on to another poetry book, because you have just so, so many, and they're all so beautiful and, and unique in different ways. But there was another one, um, To Everyone We've Ever Been, which, let alone mm. that title, made me emotional. <laughs> I, I, just, I love those types of things. And I would love to know, um, kind of diving into the inspiration for that poetry book in specifics to the other ones. Yeah, well, thank you. Um, yeah, To Everyone We've Ever Been, that was, that's my personal that's my personal favorite. <laughs> I feel like um, that's that's the one. It's a lot more. It's really personal, and I I've never written in a way that was and put it out there that was so close to home and that was revolved around family and community in that way. Um, and I wrote it during 2020, so you can imagine that it was just a huge time of reflection for everyone being locked inside, and so. Um, during that time, I remember even the process for that book just looked so different than anything I've ever written before. Um, because I originally wanted it to be something that focused on my maternal grandparents, um, and focused on kind of their story and focused on them as kind of the base of, of our family unit and what that looked like having my grandpa be the kind of only grandparent in my life because my, both my grandmothers passed away when my, my parents were young. Um, and I just wanted to, to learn a little bit more about their story because um, I had read, my uncle had saved a bunch of letters between my grandparents, um, handwritten letters between them. Um, and so we were reading through them and laughing and looking at how beautiful it was. And I was thinking, wow, I've never actually, you know, heard enough or more about the story about the, about the two of them and how they came to be in their life together um before my grandma's passing and so I really was that's where it kind of started and of course as writing sometimes does it took a turn and the book ended up being about something totally different well, not totally different but I remember sitting on my couch one day as I was writing and I started writing a poem about both of my grandparents both of my biological grandmothers um, and I started crying and I was thinking, you know, about how impactful it is that these two black women, kind of the base of, of my existence and of my entire family's existence, um, we, none of us exist without them. 
um, and what it means that both of them were taking, taken away from my parents at such a young age and passed away in tragic ways at such a young age. Um, and what losing Black women at the base of a family, especially for Black families, what that means, what that looks like, and how that impacts families for generations. And so when I was sitting and writing and crying and thinking about my grandmothers, and that's when it kind of clicked. And I said, this is who it's about. This is the, the focus. Um, this is this is the, the story that I'm trying to tell. And so the poems in To Everyone Who's Ever Been are really about just that, right? Kind of looking at my family, but looking at, you know, Black communities in a larger scale, but specifically in the context of my family um, and different generations of my family. And so I talk about my mother, I talk about my father, I talk about my stepfather, I talk about my grandmothers. And so um, just talking about some of the complex relationships, talking about the, the kind of, you know, I have a, a poem called Soul Food, where it really talks about how similar Black culture is, you know, there's, as we know, there's not this kind of monolithic idea of Black culture, right? There's not just one Black culture. Blackness is global. There's Black people all over the world. There's all different kinds of cultures that we have, and many of them are very different from the from the next. And so it was a way for me to not generalize and say, this is what all Black families look like and experience, but it was more so that poem focused on a lot of Black cultures have similar values or similar things, which I think is really beautiful way that kind of bonds, binds us together in a lot of ways of food and family and tradition and those kinds of things that come together. And so soul food was a way of saying that like, one thing that holds almost all Black families together, it seems, is food, right? And so soul food was about, you know, sitting at the table and yes, the food might like look different and your traditional foods and your traditional prayers or whatever it might be looks like, there's there's still still so many similarities here, um, which I think is a really beautiful thing. Um, and so yeah, to everyone I've ever been was a really personal project. Um, it was inspired by family, by my grandmothers, and it was definitely my favorite piece to write. Which I feel like <laughs> usually I you know people try to like um, promote their their works equally, but I remember I was at a, a holiday market recently as a vendor selling my books and someone was like, oh, which one should I get? And I was like, honestly, get this one. <laughs> get the temporary movement. This is my favorite one. <laughs> um, so, yeah. It's just absolutely beautiful. And I can't even put into words how incredible your writing is. And this is just me as a lover of your work, just kind of gushing over the work that you produce because just <laughs> following it, it's absolutely beautiful. And even that one, especially, it, it resonated with me and it made me think about my family, my grandparents and how I got here. And it, it's, it's just such a beautifully reflective piece at its core. And I think that's so important for everyone to kind of, you know, I'm going to promote it as well. All of your poetry is absolutely <laughs> amazing. But this, this work, it's just so incredible. And the, the, the poetry you put out, it, it further inspires me, because I am I mean, I'm going to school as a, a reporter, but my love of writing came from these creative and these personal pieces. So to see that your work and to see it going out and affecting so many people and you're allowing yourself to have that kind of express that vulnerability and share sides of your past and connect with your readers. 
it's something as me who's always wanted to do that. It's it's so inspiring, even just for me personally. So I want to just say like your work is amazing. Thank you so much. That's so kind. And moving to um, another <laughs> book of poetry that you have, which I saw again in transit, but kind of as a, a different question and kind of accompanying all the amazing work that you've put together and just focusing on the poetry alone. I'd love to know um, while each book kind of it's it's different in the ways that you were saying that it's it's laid out and some of the the stories behind them are all different but at each of their core how does it um kind of show the reader a different experience but it's leading to the overall same message Mm -hmm. i think well within transit it's was probably the most different from the first two books um it was really it was some poetry that I had been writing kind of here and there throughout 2020 and 2021. Um, and I wanted, there's some pieces that I selected that I wanted to put together. Um, and I wanted it to be an ebook or like a digital book because of accessibility, because I mean, just in general, but also with the pandemic, just understanding that so many people only have access to computers and online things right now. And, um, just thinking about what works best for different people when it comes to ways of reading. And so I wanted to have something um, that could, could hit some of those accessibility um, markers for me. And so that's why it was a, um, a digital book. But In Transit was really reflecting on, at the simplest of its core, um, all of my time spent on public transit. <laughs> um, I don't drive, I've never drove, I don't have a license. Um, and, you know, I've always taken to get everywhere transit, whether it be the train, the bus, the streetcar, whatever, whatever, wherever it is, taxis, um, Ubers. <laughs> and so I was thinking about and reflecting on, you know, what those experiences look like and meant for me, because it was always a time where I really found sacred, like before work, being on the bus and just listening to music or reading and just like, people watching, like, that's always something that I've really enjoyed. I've always really enjoyed being on the road and, and just being able to take in everything around me. And so um, I, I just kind of really talked about different experiences. I talked about um, someone that I fell in love with and we met in Toronto and we spent the summer kind of just being really lovey-dovey and on the streetcar and, you know, kissing on the TTC and all these kinds of things. And I also talked about, um, there's a poem called Minimum Wage, where I'm thinking about my first couple of years in university, where I still worked um, in like a food court in a city not too far from mine. Um, And the train, I was on a bus and a train derailed in front of us. And so we got stuck behind it for a while. And so I remember calling my manager and being like, hey, I don't know how late I'm going to be, but I am on the way. Um, I'm also like 18. I don't have money, so I can't just hop out and like take a cat, right? Um, So I'm like, okay, I have to kind of wait on this bus. Um, And I remember her being a little disappointed that I was late, right? And thinking about the fact that my shift was at noon and I used to get up every weekend at 9 a.m. to take the 9 a.m. bus or get up before 9 a.m., take the 9 a.m. bus, um, take another bus and then take another bus and then still have to walk like 10 minutes to get to my destination. And so thinking about that journal journey, especially for a lot of 
black and brown people who, who have to work a lot of precarious jobs and a lot of minimum wage jobs, especially at that age in university. And thinking about the, the truck, the truck that I took to get there, all for a train to derail and that to be put, blamed on me by my boss and be like, well, can you hurry up? And me being like, no, I, I can't. <laughs> and her being like, could you have taken an earlier bus? And I'm like, no, literally, I took the first one. <laughs> I took the first bus of the day. Um, so it kind of spoke to class and, and um, yeah, really, really spoke to class in that way. Um, and so, yeah, there's just all these kind of different stories from, from my commute, um, which I thought was really fun and beautiful and emotional and, and just cool, um, a cool way of, of putting some stories together. And I guess kind of in regards to your part of the question mentioning how each book is different, but has a similar theme, I would say, especially within transit, I think it's a lot different, again, than the other two. But in all of my work, I would say there's a common theme of um, my experiences and in regards to identity as a Black queer woman. And so I would say that at the, at the core of all of my work, I always keep in mind um, that I want this to be portrayed, right? Whether it be through my pop culture references in my in my poetry, whether it be in my um, food references, I always, at the end of the day, am writing in mind thinking, I want Black people to understand this. <laughs> I want Black people to know what I'm talking about. This is who I'm writing for, right? Um, all different kinds of Black people. And so I would say at the core, that kind of is throughout all of my works. But I would say that the actual theme of like the work itself is quite different. Like, I don't know if it, if it um, I think that the first two, the common theme would be um, kind of impacts of, of racism on Black people and um, impacts of, you know, colonialism and um, sexism and just kind of looking at the kind of systemic ways that Black people are impacted on a day-to-day -day basis and how that impacts me specifically and my family and my loved ones and the communities that I grew up in. Um, whereas in transit, I think the, the main theme is really just, it was more lighthearted. It was a little bit more fun and on the tone of, you know, these are my experiences as a young Black person on transit and the things that I witnessed and the funny, the scary, the um, disturbing, <laughs> the racist encounters, the um, great people that I've met on transit. Um, so, so yeah, it was kind of just a, honestly more felt like almost like a journal of, of my experiences. Come back next week to hear more from Lydia and all the amazing work that she does. And while we've talked about some pretty serious topics today, I want our listeners to know that at Fanshawe, we have confidential support on campus for students who have experienced gender-based violence, whether it happened before they were a student or while they were at Fanshawe. Leah, who is a sexual violence prevention advisor, can meet you confidentially to review your options and rights. This can include academic accommodations, counseling, medical interventions, reporting, legal options, and more. Sexual violence is never the survivor's fault. Leah can be reached through her email to set up an appointment at lkmarshall at fanshawc.ca. 
Next week, we'll be talking more with Lydia about some of her work and her event coming up in March. Again, that's Reclaiming Pleasures, Sex, Race, and Liberation, an online event coming up March 8th from 7 to 8.30. And to register, you can email support at uwo.ca. As for the Interrobang podcast, you can catch up with every episode on Google Play, Apple Music, and Spotify. Make sure you subscribe to our newsletter to keep up with all things Fanshawe.